0: Welcome to today's edition of Feet to the Fire, where we're always challenging the status quo. For more cutting edge commentary, go to FeetToTheFire.org. That is Feet, the number two, thefire.org. And now your host. Let's get started. Let's round a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity and this time to gather and to study your word. Give us insight. uh, Build us up in the faith. uh, Nurture and feed your church. We pray for salvation for the lost who may be among us today. And uh, that you would inform our minds and transform our lives by your word. We commit this time to you. We thank you. We love you. We pray. Amen. Amen. Excellent. Okay. Uh, This is Ephesians chapter 2. Moving right along. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. The Christ wrought church. The abolition of hostility, that's the name of today's lesson. The Christ-wrought church, the abolition of hostility. A wise man recently suggested that today's wokeism might be a modern trend in much the same way that Pearl Jam and the Nirvana grunge movement swept the teen spirit of the 90s. You know, alternative rock bands, I'm real, I'm authentic, and I'm grumpy. As tempting and enticing a theory as that may be, and the individual only suggested it to give this foolhardy, gullible, and easily manipulated generation the benefit of the doubt, as though maybe woke is just the new cool, charitably giving them a mild excuse for falling for all of this claptrap. As neat and tidy as this would make things, I must humbly disagree. No one was threatening your job if you didn't buy a Pearl Jam concert ticket or wear flannel. No, no. today's wokeism is far broader and more sinister and more threatening and more philosophically grounded than any prior cultural trend about which we might reminisce. And it is notoriously anti-gospel and anti-Christ. Wokeism is not a trend. It's anti-Christ. There is a concerted effort to force us all to adopt a worldview that is conspicuously, intentionally anti-Bible. And it's not only that the world can't solve the problem of enmity, division, and strife, it's that it doesn't want to, since the work of Satan is marked by enmity, division, and strife, and he always wants more of it. So why does the world fail to achieve peace is a question we have to ask, and it's because it creates and upholds artificial distinctions. That's why the world fails to achieve peace. Here's what we're going to look at today. Knowing, this is what Paul teaches, knowing your former estrangement that is remediated by the reconciliatory ministry of Jesus. Estrangement means separation. Knowing your former estrangement that is remediated, it's fixed, by the reconciliatory ministry of Jesus. Therefore, Christian, resist artificial distinctions and pursue edification together in Christ. That is the opposite of the woke movement. Okay, how did we get here? Staying in the text. Chapter 1, quick review from the last three weeks. Chapter 1, blessed be God for so great a salvation. We are looking ahead to glory. Therefore, church, Christians, grow in the knowledge of God, especially knowing his surpassing power toward us who believe. Do you guys remember all that stuff from the last couple weeks? okay? Chapter 2, once being dead and wicked, you now share Christ's destiny. That was last week. Therefore, walk in good works. 2.10, which we looked at last week, is climactic. It's a culminating thought. Perhaps we might take here a mental breath, Paul seems to. We hit 2.10, it's a climactic thought. Good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. And then he takes like a mental pause and a breath. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, is like an interpolation. It's a parenthetical interruption down a brief detour for clarification. Speaking, speaking of your new destiny and calling to good works, Christian, do you remember what you actually were and how you got here? Beyond merely sinners, you were of a peculiar kind of sinner. You were Gentile sinners. You see, you couldn't have any of this rich inheritance in particular because you Gentiles were estranged. You were hopeless. You were cut out from anything and everything religious. But the ministry of Christ has abolished hostility and reconciled man to man and man to God. So now you can all grow together. And by the way, this interpolation, this interruption, continues on all through chapter 3 and rises to a doxological ending at the end of chapter 3. And then it comes to Ephesians 4 when it goes right back to practical. And I might suggest he picks up essentially where 2.10 left off with those good works. So if you follow my outline, he says, beginning of chapter 4, okay, now back to those good works I mentioned in 2.10 I was talking about before I took a detour. Practically speaking, 4 through 6, the end of the book, do all this. The remainder of chapters 4 to 6 is the whole second half of the book, an outworking of 2.10. Here are the good works that God prepared in advance that you might walk in them. Does that outline kind of make sense? Hopefully it does. All right, let's jump in. Let's read it first, and then uh, jump in. Uh, The Greek is a little stickier in this section, admittedly. It says this, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, uh, remember that once you, Gentiles by the flesh, the ones being called uncircumcision by the ones being called the circumcision and that in the flesh done by hands, that you were at that time without Christ, Excluded, separated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of the promise, not having hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you, the ones formerly being far off, have been made near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, the one making both one and the dividing wall of separation destroying, tearing down the hostility in his flesh, the law of the commandments with regulations abolishing in order that of the two he might make in himself into one new man making peace and reconciling the both in one body to God through the cross, killing the hostility either in himself or in it, the cross. It could be either one. Verse seventeen, and coming, he preached peace to you, the ones far off, and peace to the ones near, because through uh, because through him we have access both by one spirit to the Father. So then, consequently, no longer you are strangers and foreigners, but you are fellow citizens of the saints and household members of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Himself Christ Jesus being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom also you being built, are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Amen. Beautiful writing from Paul. Okay, number one point. Remember your separation, your humiliation. This is verses 11 to 13. Remember, Gentiles, your separation from God and your humiliation. There were, listen, we we're so used to the new covenant. In the old covenant, there were very real distinctions, and we all were on the outside. Raise your hand if you're Jewish, or were are Jewish. You, we were on the outside. Circumcision was a mark of the covenant people. It meant set aside, the filth removed, And sanctification, holiness. If you want to turn it down a little, Steve, I'm sorry. I keep, like, fuzzing out. And the rest of the nations, all of humanity was polluted. So circumcision meant set aside, clean, the filth is removed, you're set apart to God. The rest of the nations, all of humanity was polluted. Even while we know that circumcision was only an external religious regulation, as Paul says, done by the hand, it delineated. It was a demarcation between. We were alienated from God's holy people. Paul's saying, excluded from all covenant and promises, and Paul lists five detriments of being a Gentile. We'll go through them quickly. One, no part in messianic deliverance. No king or kingdom. The Gentiles were mad people run by mad kings and capricious dynasties. Is that not the history of humanity? Whether you're in Egypt or Rome or wherever? Okay, number two, they were excluded from the commonwealth. Which was the Commonwealth of Israel, which was shared national blessings, commonwealth, heritage, which was the land, law, which translated to law and order, temple worship, and God's protection, excluded from the Commonwealth. All the Gentiles had to themselves, are you ready? was lawlessness. That was mankind. Barbaric cruelty, poverty, greed, subject to theft, slavery, invasion, idol worship, and all kinds of mayhem and decadence. That's Gentiles. Number three, strangers of the covenant. The patriarchal covenants, the Davidic covenants, the covenants of the promise, which is the Abrahamic promise. So therefore, Gentiles had no inheritance. Gentiles had no future. Their existence was grim at all times. They had no true religion. They had nothing. They were, number four, hopeless. Death and judgment was the rule of the day for Gentiles. See the book of Judges god's repudiation of the gentile nations death and carnage that's the gentiles and number five godless in the world no relationship with or revelation of a creator god that's key they had no concept of a creator god to whom one might turn as to the savior a saving god thus it was all profanity all the time for gentiles Now, this was a very real problem pre-Christ. The Gentiles were hopeless and godless. Hence the paganism we naturally associate with primitive, uncivilized societies. That's world history. Why do you think untouched tribes today are still running around naked, polygamous, and cannibalistic? It's not unique and diverse. It's heinous and carnal and altogether normal and ordinary. It's the status quo of nations. The status quo of anything other than, listen, being Jewish. That is until AD 1, and then the status quo of anything other than being Christian after that. This is the paganism rampant. In the, quote, civilized societies throughout history, not just the native tribes that I just described that we often picture. This is the decadence of Rome. They put some clothes on themselves, but the filth continued. Indeed, the only real reformed group civilized with true moral order on the entire planet until Christ was the Jews. Deuteronomy 4.8, God said, and what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? The Native Americans were not civilized. The Romans were not civilized. The barbaric Germanic tribes were not civilized. The Babylonians were not civilized. The nations today are not civilized. And so furthermore, this blows up the idealistic notion that we're shoved from the culture down our throats and in schools. The glamorized, breathlessly enamored view of world religions and world civilizations, diversity, diversity, it's all, listen, hopeless paganism. It destroys the idea of the noble savage. In fact, every Gentile was and is always only horribly savage. And it destroys the idea that religions have always existed on par with Judaism or Christianity in reasonability, in truthfulness, truthfulness and in ethics. As though Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is one among many equals or peers. Uh, Let me say that sentence again because I stuttered and I really wanted to get across. Let me say it again. It destroys the idea that religions have always existed on par with Judaism and Christianity in reasonability, truthfulness, and ethics. As though Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his Christ the mediator of the new covenant, is one among many, among equals, among peers. No, there's only always been one religion, the worship of Yahweh in Israel and now through Christ. We've been duped, guys, into adopting pluralism. But that is emphatically not the view of Scripture, pluralism, many religions. Scripture only sees a clear division, the people of God and the remaining others in one group who are blind heathens. That's the view of the Bible. Everything else is equally, simply the same single thing. Rank hedonism, idolatry, dressed up with different rags at different times, different masks, at times a facade of sophistication and erudition, at times not even sophistication. Everyone else, for all time, has been running around entirely naked, partially naked, or dressed momentarily in order to maintain a facade of sophistication until they end up naked again in the public baths. That's human society. And everyone else, for all time and now, has been hopelessly ignorant. World religions? World religions? It's a scam. It's a mere continuation of more age-old Gentile ignorance and foolishly darkened minds, Romans 1, just under a new banner with a new name or classification, a new designation to make it sound as though it's something novel and insightful, as though finally the Gentiles have figured it out. Tibetan Buddhism, that must be it. As though they've figured it out. It's the same old lie, just repackaged. The philosophical grounding for understanding humanity in this way, the philosophical grounding from the Bible to understand humanity this way that I've just described you, always profane all the time, the same old idolatry, is in part Ephesians two eleven. Remember, at that time, you all, Gentiles by birth, by nature, were estranged. Irreligious, non-religious. You see what I mean? God's judgment was never severe, ever. Heinous pagan revelry was always the story of mankind, the sad, deplorable, ordinary narrative incurring righteous judgment and indignation from God, and the exception, the extraordinary exception deviating from this norm and standard was always only the people of God, first the Jew, now the Christian. And you and I, folks, were always part of the outside group. That's what we were. Non-Jews, guys. We were always part of the outside group. The hopeless, the godless, the lost, the darkened, the foolish majority. That's Paul's point here. That's what you were. Dark and under judgment. And so, Christian, do you consider living on this side of the cross as a Gentile? (laughs) We're going to talk about that next week. Praise Praise the Lord. Do you know the angels leaned in? We're going to do this next week in Ephesians 3. It's so awesome. They leaned in and they're like, oh my. No, it wasn't Israel. It was the nations. What? He was saving the nations. We're on that side of the cross. Praise the Lord that God put you on that side of the cross. God, do you ever consider, Christian, God taking an outsider like you, an outsider? You had no religion. Think like Abraham, living in the land of the Chaldeans, and God just saving you. No, not even. First, we learned in Ephesians, choosing you at the beginning and then saving you. What an astounding salvation, and what an astounding God is our Savior. You, formerly far off, he has brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. All right. Consider your estrangement, Christian. Number two, reject division of every kind. We're going to get... I started with woke. We're going to get there. But we're building a theological, philosophical groundwork for that, for anti-wokeism. So number two, reject division of every kind. Now... I'm not going to go through every phrase. There's just not enough time, but I'm giving you an overview. This is from verses 14 to 19 with the key phrase, the end of verse 16, killing the hostility in it, meaning the cross, or in himself, in his body. Kill the hostility. So here's a little theology walking through 14 to 19. Christ abolished division vertically between man and God and horizontally between man and man. There are three entailments of that work of Christ on the cross in view here, and they're all connected to his body in him. Now, I'm going to go fast. Number one, he paid the law's penalty. That was we owed to God. Number one, he paid the law's penalty. We owed to God. Number two, he perfectly fulfilled the law's requirements. Listen, in his righteous life as the representative head of those born both under the law and outside the law. Think second Adam. He is our new head. Representing both. And in fact, it says the law, this is in uh, verse uh, 14, 15. 15. The, the, uh, the law of commandments in or with, with regulations, the law of commandments with regulations, rules or ordinances. It's very interesting. The Greek word's dogma, and that's where we get dogma from, dogmatics. So the law of commandments with dogmatics, with all these regulations was positively completed, fulfilled, and satisfied in Christ, and then subsequently abolished, done away with. All of, the, all of the dogmatics of the old covenant. And number three, so he paid the penalty, he perfectly fulfilled all the requirements, and number three, he ended those old covenant requirements, having fulfilled them, because these old covenant requirements were only a representation, do you realize that, circumcision, These old covenant requirements were only a symbol of holiness, but not the thing itself. They weren't holiness. No longer are the Mosaic rules required as a mark or an act of obedience and faith in order to identify you as a member of God's people, God's family. Those were only a sign, the Mosaic rituals. They were only a signal for a time of the holiness always associated with God's people, but those requirements were not the substance of holiness. The requirements weren't holiness. You see that? They were a shadow of holiness, and they were done merely in the flesh by human hands. And so the point is, Christ inaugurated the new covenant. He created a new man as the prototype for us so that we are born again by the Spirit in him. We are like him. Now watch this. We are actually holy internally transformed, living by faith in the sun and not by mosaic externalities, which are simply, as I said, symbols or shadows that are rendered obsolete in light of the substance. Hopefully that made sense. The externalities are gone. Christ has come. He is the new man. He is the prototype. He rises a new man, glorified body, and then grants all equal access to God by one spirit. Therefore, with the law and its dogma its requirements abolished and gone and fulfilled done away with rendered obsolete hebrews right the book of hebrews then there is no longer any distinction there's no longer any distinction and thus there's no longer any hostility there is no externally listen, there's no externally clean or unclean there's no inside the camp or the commonwealth or outside the commonwealth there's no member versus estranged there's no division or anger anymore listen, the separations and the distinctions were the source of the enmities and the hostility and the animosity if the distinctions are gone, so is the hostility. How can we resurrect any such distinctions again and so rekindle hostility in God's church? Indeed, there mustn't be any division, or it is dangerously suggestive of insufficient, incomplete, or inadequate work on the part of Christ. Did you follow that? If you resurrect distinctions and hostility, you're then suggesting that Christ's work was not sufficient to abolish the distinctions and the requirements of the law. It's also important. This is very important. It's not that We both got combined, Jew and Gentile, but Christ was one new man. So listen, not the Gentiles become a little Jewish and the Jews become a little Gentile. Both identities, the paganism of Gentiles and the ritually marked Jews, both identities are thrown out in favor of an entirely new man. And I'll give you something from my notes later, but in case your minds aren't going there now, I'll give you a signal, a literary signal, and then we'll get to it. This isn't in my notes. Don't speak to me anymore about black and white. I am not black, I am not white, and we don't make black white when we get together. We are entirely one new man. Do you see what I'm saying? These distinctions are gone. Okay, a little taste for later. It's, It's not a toleration of differences. The Jew had to tolerate the Greek, the Greek had to tolerate the Jew. No. It's not a tolerance of differences. Uh, We're holding hands and we're joining together. No, but rather we are entirely recreated and re-identified so that the old identification, old markers and qualities are gone. Meaningless. Don't tolerate them. Don't tolerate ethnic distinctions. They aren't there. They're non-existent. So we see all these repetitive, colorful words, phrases to circle out and that Paul uses and keep reemphasizing the point. He himself is our peace. The dividing wall of the barrier has been destroyed. The hostility in his flesh he has abolished, made peace. He preached peace to the far and peace to the near, Gentile and Jew. Through him, we all have access to the Father by one spirit. See the unity? The unity, guys, is a big deal. It's a very big deal. Now he's saying, no one is a stranger or foreigner, but we are all fellow citizens of the saints, and we are all household members of God. This is one new people group, folks. The old is gone, the new is here, and the new is the church, the very Israel of God. I'm just not seeing Jew and Greek anymore in this passage at all. How more specifically did Christ abolish division between men? You guys with me? Okay. I always ask that. I ask that when I teach elementary band. But I don't teach elementary band anymore. You with me? Stay with me. Everybody in the back too? All right, good. All right, good. So how more specifically did he abolish division between men in his body, his physical suffering? Listen. He was crushed for sin. He paid for all the enmity, all the crimes, all the raging, and all the warring factions reconciling man to man. Whatever debt was owed one to another in the name of God's justice was paid in full for believers. There is no more restitution owed man to man. There is no more reparations. No more. To suggest otherwise, again, is to say that Christ didn't pay For all the injustice, all the victimization, all of the harm, all the injury from one man against another. But he did. He buried the hatchet. It's over. Whatever injustice was done to you or your great-grandparents or your children has been paid for. The debt is gone. To demand payment now would be injustice because it would mean being paid double, extra payback for something that was already paid. Christ's very real physical bleeding, his body breaking and dying, it put to death and buried in the grave permanently the enmity between men. Every injustice was struck into his back and his blood paid for it all. Amen, church? It is reminiscent of Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural in the middle of the Civil War. Quoting Scripture, Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away, yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago. So still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Wow. Read that in the Lincoln Monument and don't cry. I dare you. That's the point. Now, he was just talking about American heritage and slavery in the Civil War. We're talking more broadly about human history. If it, Lincoln said, if it's got to be paid for, then let it be paid for with the blood of men. Well, in a greater way, Christ's blood is paid for it all. There's no more hostility. So, let's look at history then. I talk theology. Historically, this then is the grounding, Ephesians 2.11 and to the end, is the grounding for all true actual equality. The Christian doctrine of the new covenant is equality. When the church was inaugurated it burst asunder all former distinctions the novel and yet true and transcendent principle of equality of all men finally entered onto the scene of human history shedding abroad the light of freedom with unprecedented and liberating brightness enlightening minds men's minds to the reality of equality the gospel enlightened men's minds to the reality of equality indeed men are all equal Ephesians 6 master Slavery are equal. Colossians 4. James 2. No favoritism. Ephesians 5. Mutuality of wife and husband. 1 Peter 3. Husbands and wives are equal and co-heirs. Galatians 3, listen to this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And I would add, applying it to today, there is no more black and white. It's insufferable. That Christians ever use that kind of language. Insufferable. Colossians 3. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Can it be any more clear? This is earth shattering. Guys, this transformed human history. Notably, when you trace our own history in the West, this gospel doctrine of equality in Christ continued shattering kingdoms and shattering despotism and tyranny until it finally reached a culminating expression in our own founding. Where did we get this idea, this novel idea of equality? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created what? Equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Dear Christian, where do you think this novel idea came from? Your very own religion, the gospel, Ephesians 2, and the rest of the New Testament. Equality is, listen, a Christian innovation. Did you hear that? Equality is a Christian innovation. And then obviously, the Constitution, particularly the Bill of Rights, and particularly the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which is, there's your defense against all the wokeism. The Civil War amendments, abolition of slavery, equal protection under the law, right to vote. We have statutory equality in this nation. We do not have inequality. Praise God because of the influence of the gospel, shattering kingdoms and shattering man's evil. One of the most wicked expressions of which was American slavery, admittedly, but it's been shattered by the gospel. Why are we still fighting? We should be rejoicing and not apologizing as Christians, but putting up a billboard, broadcasting the power of the gospel to do what 6,000 years of human history couldn't do, establish equality and abolish slavery. There's still slavery going on in the world. And here we're apologizing, Christians apologizing. Shame on you for being embarrassed of your gospel. Look what the gospel has wrought in our nation. It's amazing. Okay. Where in the world do you think this all came from? Christ, apostolic teaching and the doctrine of the church. even with this new covenant in the body of Christ, even with the New Covenant and during the early church, in the book of Acts. Am I boring you guys? I'm serious. Are you with me? I'm, I, I'm, there's always two voices going on when you're teaching. You're teaching? you know? And the, the guy in the back is just I'm like, why well, like? Is that a good sentence or a bad sentence? What should I follow it up with? Are they paying me? Oh, I got them, I got them. And when I, I, I would get, you know, it would happen too in school. Like you see eyes go. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'm getting bored. Sorry. Let me, uh, what do you mean, pull a trick out of my sleeve? I would, sometimes in rehearsal with my little kids, I know I was boring. So I would stop, I'd get rid of the song, we're like, do something else, pull out a different song, change it. So I, I can't do that right now because you have to finish the Ephesians too. So if you're bored, I'm sorry. But stay with me. Come on, No look around. What are you looking at on the floor? What's on the floor? Up here. It's so over there. I don't, okay. If, you, if I'm boring, write a report. Send it to Randy. All right? I, there's nothing I can do. Doing my best. All right. I don't really care. All right. Let's go. All right. Even with the new covenant in the body of Christ in the early church, it was difficult for the fledgling church to overcome these divisions in the first century and accept equality between the Jew and Gentile. And, and there were wicked manufactured divisions continuing over the ages, like slavery, barbarism, and there still is today. Practically, Christ is our peace, though, who has abolished all division. And listen, any other assertion, any assertion otherwise that that the division isn't gone, which is the danger of the woke movement, any assertion otherwise that division is abolished, that's a direct assault on the sufficiency of Christ. It's erecting any, any distinctions that we erect whatsoever fight against Christ's ministry any suggestions that yes this is fine we have unity but but plus we need some other restitution or restorative principle or like so we need social justice that suggests and even it actually formally asserts the insufficiency of christ it's not just suggestive that Christ is insufficient. It's asserting that Christ is insufficient. When you need Christianity plus, well, yeah, it's fine, sir. We have unity, dividing wall, blah, blah, blah. Social justice. BLM, Black Lives Matter. That's an assault on Christ. This is why language, it's so crucial, language matters. Phrases like, listen, listen, are you guys tuned up? Enough, you get this in public school. It's, it's, it's not just vain, it's evil, Phrases like celebrate uniqueness, celebrate diversity, multiculturalism. These phrases are and must be anathema to the Christian. It is a false anthropology. It is a false worldview. It erects dead distinctions, and it is anti-gospel. Racial and ethnic distinctions are nothing more than differences in height and eye color. That's how stupid this conversation is. I'm the blue-eyed group. Brown eyes matter. This is anathema to the Christian. For a fuller treatment on this issue, I refer you to the abolition of hostility that leads to peace on my website. I preached an hour-long college seminar for for the seminary, a seminar on this that explains it in more detail and traces the whole history of the woke movement, all that, if you're interested. But... There is no more white or black, and there is no more white or POC, people of color. That one burns me, because they just had to broaden it to include more victim groups to have more support. It's ridiculous. It's false. Paul even rebuked Peter over this, once again erecting distinctions in Galatians 2. Peter fell into this, and Paul rebuked him publicly. Application, your Christian calling is to speak out against wokeness and distinctions, You have to speak out against it. Listen now, in defense of the gospel, because it's a gospel issue, Christians, even so-called thought leaders, and I can name them, but I won't, have been unable to clearly articulate and give a sound and reasoned argument against fake constructions and false words and phrases. Here's some false words and phrases. Woke, social justice, white privilege, lie, systemic racism, lie, systematic police brutality, lie, false construction. All of these are false, they are manufactured ideas, they are not real, and we need to be able to defend it from the scriptures. In in short, the church went woke because she was uninformed, and she's not thinking right. Remember that I've been telling you for weeks now, bad thinking breeds, or bad theology breeds bad thinking, breeds bad behavior. The church has been easily duped, unable to make a sound defense, 1 Peter 3. Artificial distinctions are unacceptable at face value to the Christian. We do not talk in those terms. We do not put someone on an elder board because he'll add color to it. We want a black or Hispanic on the elder board because he'll add color. We put it on the merit of the man. That's biblical. And what I just said is suggested in a mainstream, very popular book by a very conservative, reformed Calvinist Baptist pastor of a megachurch, very well known. That's the stuff we're getting. Okay, let's go on. So, uh, remember your former estrangement. What was my second point? Oh, reject all disunity and division. Reject division. And number three, seek unity in Christ. Our unity is grounded in this, verses 20 to 21. We're wrapping up here. Our unity is grounded in this, it says. The apostolic teaching, those who wrote Scripture and the New Testament prophets, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, these guys spoke God's word until the written canon was complete, until we, had, we didn't have the Bible written in the apostolic age, they were in the process of writing it. By the way, a foundation is laid and it's not to be relayed. Quick detour, you don't relay a foundation. Hence, these, being an apostle, the apostolic gift, prophecy and other charismatic, miraculous gifts, have indeed ceased because of the obsolescence of function. They no longer have a function which was to authenticate scripture. It's over. The foundation was laid. That's why we're cessationists. These gifts have stopped. Okay, so unity is grounded on the apostolic teaching. And number two, it's grounded on the person and ministry of Christ, who is the cornerstone, it says. Our common new humanity is in Christ and no longer in Adam. And this is a significant argument here for a covenantal framework, covenant theology, over and against dispensationalism, meaning this, and we probably have a mix in here. So I won't go too far down this road. We'll talk about it more next week. But how you view the church, okay? I'm not dispensational, and I I think that's a faulty view. Um, Dispensationalism says this. The church is like parentheses in God's redemptive work in human history, and we're going to get raptured out, and then God's going to resume with physical national Israel until the end of time, okay? Resume all the old covenant. That's dispensationalism. That's wildly popular, if that sounds like, yeah, that's what I think. You, like 98% of the evangelical church now thinks that. And I don't, I don't, I'm just pulling that number there. I don't think that's a right view. This argues for a covenantal view. Here's that God has worked through advancing, mounting, and accumulating covenants, culminating in the new covenant that subsumes and fulfills them all. It's the all-surpassing covenant. By this, then, the church is the culmination and the endpoint of Jew and Gentile, no longer two but one. The trajectory of history is the new covenant in Christ. Thus, he's the cornerstone of a new spiritual temple, hence the symbolic spiritual interpretation of all Old Testament prophecies, having their spiritual fulfillment in Christ and his new covenant church, the supremacy of which is clearly defined at the end of Ephesians 1, the supremacy of the church. The church, his body, the the fullness of him, the one filling all in all. It's all about the church. The messianic kingdom has been inaugurated in Christ. The messianic kingdom is spiritual. It's now. Look at the spiritual language in this section. In him, the whole building, edifice, being joined together grows into a holy temple. That's symbolic figurative language. John 4, worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. And the final fulfillment, or the consummation, the culmination of the kingdom is in the second advent what we would call the realized kingdom already not yet that's physical in the new heaven and new earth wherein God's abode is with man but the implication is this that temple worship of the nations has begun already you see that spiritually temple worship has begun we are that temple The temple worship and the drawing of the nations to God, prophesied in the Old Testament, the messianic kingdom, has its partial fulfillment in the church now and then fuller in the age to come. In fact, in Revelation, it says there, I did not see a temple, in Revelation 21 or 21, end of 21. I did not see a temple because the Lord and his Christ are the temple. You see? So there's very strong reason to make an argument for a covenantal framework, meaning, The prophecies are fulfilled spiritually in Christ. We are the temple. Worship is happening now. The nations are being drawn into the gospel, and it'll be fully realized physically in the kingdom to come, okay? That is a legitimate view, and I think the Bible sustains that here, but this all, why am I talking about this? Because this all gives the theological basis and the framework and the foundation, the underpinning upon which we assert unity. And we repudiate all and every single kind of division. Soundly, decisively, fearlessly, without reservation, without hesitation, without equivocation. We are that spiritual temple. Because here again, adopting woke, listen, is not a political misstep. It is an affront to the gospel and the new covenant temple worship. Are we not worshiping together in the temple? I think of what Paul said to the Corinthians. One follows Paul, one follows Cephas, one follows Peter. Enough of this, he says. All are yours. All are yours. Whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos, you're of Christ and Christ is of God. And all is is yours. Enough of this. We're united. That's the point. It's an affront to temple worship. Temple worship that's already happening and still yet to come. It's a deviation from the gospel, having woke divisions. It's a challenge to the gospel and its implications. Namely, that we are God's single, united temple in Christ, being built up for holy worship and as a habitation for God. Paul said this in Corinthians is Christ divided Is Christ no Christ is not divided we are joined together in him okay so let's wrap this up let me reiterate the re- rejection of marxist language it's the cultic language of a humanistic cult the central theme in marxism or cultural marxism this social justice black white all this stuff is division whether by class or by sex or by age ethnicity Ethnicity is the big conspicuous one right now It's a religion of division And it's built on the doctrine of division And it's a satanic doctrine A doctrine of demons And further to clarify I want to make this point I am not arguing for uniformity I'm arguing for unity People can be distinct along superficial lines Hence, when you have politically correct attempts At diversity and diversification It's unnecessary and it's vapid It's shallow Politically correct attempts to diversify. Blacks can worship at a black church. It's a different culture than me. But we're still totally united in Christ, and there's no discord. Whites can worship at a white church. Because our unity is not in skin color or physical proximity or shared personal space or the same sanctuary room usage. Our unity is in Christ. It's neither in music style or food or dress. It's in Christ. I... I'm short okay it's irrelevant to my unity with others in Christ you see what I'm saying these are arbitrary superficial distinctions our unity is deeper than that so I'm criticizing forced diversification it's unnecessary I'm not promoting diversity and we should not promote diversity Oneness in Christ is the grounding for spiritual unity, and any and every other unity necessarily fro- flows from this preeminent unity, whether it's civil unity, national unity, etc. Despite incidental differences, our Christian unity should breed national unity, civil unity, community unity, not ethnic enclaves and multiculturalism. That's not what we should be having. Diversity, diversity. No, that's division. There, is, there the, what the world sells us, I want you to pay attention to this, is a disunity by compulsion. A forced diversification, multiculturalism, celebrate diversity. It's forced diversification for a pretense of unity. It's really just virtue signaling. It forces us, the world forces us to constantly behold distinctions and stay distinct in the name of, quote, getting along. So we are this constant refrain. You hear this constant refrain in the culture. See my difference. See my skin color. Affirm my skin color. My skin color lives matters." And that's only living in constant friction, in constant attentiveness to distinctions. Constantly paying attention. I'm the short group. You're the tall group. I'm the brown-haired group. What is this? Versus the Christian view. Unity with liberty. Ours is a true unity embedded in our deepest point. Our spiritual unity under one new head, Christ, and together in one new man, a new creation. We are a new race. Real, actual unity, listen, that is yet permissive of incidental distinctions that we by nature and associations obtain, which distinctions also we have in Christ the liberty to maintain. What I just said was we have unity, but we have the liberty to maintain the st- distinctions that we naturally have by our associations and by our ethnicity. We have liberty. So our refrain is this. One man in Christ, true equality and value. Oh, and white and black folks, they like their own music and they congregate together. No problem. All good. Enjoy. I don't need a black church to put a white guy on their elder board to make me feel better. Because my unity with my black brother is not grounded in the fact that he put a white guy on there. You see how stupid that is. My unity with my black brother is grounded on my identification with him in Christ. He can have a fully black elder board. Go for it. Doesn't matter. And if there's a short church filled with short people, because they're self-conscious, they can have a fully short elder board. It doesn't bother me. Christian, preach Christ. He is the key to peace and unity. Christian, remember your separation and your humiliation. Christian, reject division of every kind. And for the sake of the gospel, seek unity in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, which shatters kingdoms and demolishes strongholds and reorients our thinking. Lord, we have the solution to the present crisis. Let us preach it. To our neighbors and to the world so that they may know you thank you for the unity that we have in christ the equality of all men we love you in your name we pray amen amen have a blessed sunday guys we'll see you next week